I don't know about you, but I almost never like it when they make movies out of books that I've read. And uh, there's, a, there's a few reasons for that. One reason is that they can't capture in movies the things that are captured in books. You, a lot of times in books you get the perspective of one of the characters and know what they're thinking. You can't really know that uh, in a movie. But sometimes they, they change the events in movies. Have you ever noticed that? They actually change the storyline. I don't know if it makes for better cinematography or uh, what it is. But, but there's another reason, apart from those, that I don't really like it when they change books or make books that I've read into stories. And that's because the scenes on the screen, the characters on the screen almost never match the characters that I've formed uh, in my own head when I read the story. Not that the picture in my head is necessarily the right one. Uh, That picture, whatever it is, was not created ex nihilo by the words themselves, but they're the result of those words mingled with a thousand impressions and images and experiences that I've had. And if we're talking about a work of fiction, well, it doesn't really matter very much. But if we're talking about a work of history, the the pictures that we conjure up in our own minds from our own experiences and impressions may cause us to miss some important things. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child and his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Father, as we read this word today and we reflect on it, help us not to miss important things. Be glorified in our reflections, in our meditations, and in our thoughts. Amen. The Magi had come asking, where is the one who has been born, the king, of the Jews, and so they brought to him the gift of gold. It was a gift that was fitting for a king. For time out of mind, gold has been a metal that has been associated 
with kings. And they came, they said, for the purpose of worshiping him. We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And on coming into the house, they worshiped him. And so they brought to him a gift of frankincense, of pure incense that seemed to indicate that they understood that this one who had been born king of the Jews was something more than just a mere man. But the significance of the third gift is not reflected in their words or their actions. What could be the meaning of this gift of myrrh that they had brought? Well, myrrh, uh, it's one of those things, again, that we hear about at Christmas time, but uh, most other times not so much. Myrrh is a gum resin that is uh, extracted uh, by uh, cuts made on a uh, thorny plant that's native to the Arabian Peninsula. And throughout history, myrrh has had several uses. Sometimes it's made into an incense. Mixed with wine, it is a potent analgesic. It's used as a painkiller, or was. And rendered as a liquid, it was used as a perfume. It's got a very aromatic fragrance to it. As we find it reflected in the Hebrew Bible, its use in Israel was as a perfume. In Esther chapter 2, in Psalm 45, and Throughout the Song of Solomon, myrrh was a fragrance that was associated with the intimate human love between a man and a woman. It was a costly commodity, and those of modest means might only smell myrrh on two occasions within their life. If they could afford it, or they had uh, friends or family of some means, they would smell it on their wedding night because their wedding bed would be perfumed with myrrh. The Song of Solomon contains a kind of a strange simile in chapter 8. It says this, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. And its zeal is as unyielding as the grave. It's a kind of an odd simile. Something that, you know, you might think that like a, like, like a teenage goth would write to his girlfriend. It's a little odd to be uh, likening your devotion to your beloved to things like death and the grave. What would cause them to make that kind of connection and for that to be meaningful to the ancient Hebrews? Well, it's because the other time in your life, if you were a common person, that you'd be apt to smell myrrh would be at a funeral. You see, myrrh was a funerary perfume. And in John chapter 19, when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea would come to take charge of the body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. They would bring with them aloes and myrrh. So love and death were the predominant times in the lives of most people, a common people, that they would smell myrrh. 
The gifts of the Magi are significant. The gift of gold reflects that they had come to honor the one who had been born king of the Jews. The gift of frankincense is reflected in their coming to worship him. And because of the gift of myrrh, some of the ancient church fathers believed that the Magi understood that this king, deserving of worship, had come to die. Could the Magi have known? You know, throughout the prophets, we encounter a description of two figures. One is of a mighty redeemer king, of the Christ who comes to rescue us. And the other is of a suffering servant. We see them side by side in the prophet Isaiah. It seems not to have occurred to the Jewish religious leaders of the first century that these two figures might in fact be one and the same person. And yet the New Testament tells us that they were indeed the same person. The Apostle Peter writes in his first letter concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And it speaks, he speaks there of the Christ, the redeeming king, the son of David, It's the one who suffered. Could the Magi have known? They had the Hebrew scriptures. Could they have known that Psalm 22 spoke of him, that uh, he, in fact, would take its words upon his lips as he hung on the cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could they have known that it was speaking of him when those uh, same words of the psalm or that same psalm says, I'm poured out like wax and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. And my tongue sticks to my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Could they have known that Isaiah was speaking about him who they had come to honor? When he wrote, surely he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Could they have known? 
But even if they didn't know, we know. And so we know how fitting this gift of myrrh was. This one who was born king of the Jews, deserving of our worship, was the suffering servant who had come to die. And he came to die with a purpose, to take away our sins, to reconcile us to God, to bring us peace with God. I said before that when we read stories, you know, pictures come to our minds. And those pictures are the result, as I said, of of our experiences, our impressions, the things that we've seen mingled together with the words. The events that are recorded here in Matthew's gospel took place sometime after, perhaps up to two years after Jesus was born. But let me read you the events surrounding his birth. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. As I read those words, what do you picture in your mind? You know, perhaps you've seen this season uh, manger scenes around town or on people's lawns, or maybe you've got one in your own house on your mantle or uh, somewhere else in the house that comes out this time of the year. And, and my guess is that that crash, that manger scene, um, looks like a wooden horse shed with a wooden feeding trough in it, maybe with a baby lying in it. You know, we're told that the angels would come to the shepherds. They would go that night and see this sight. And that picture that's so familiar to us is not the picture that they saw. Um, timber was far too costly in the southern Levant to use it for animal sheds and feeding troughs. Animal stalls were caves that were hewn out, carved out of the soft limestone in the hillsides. And feeding troughs were made out of quarried limestone blocks that were hollowed out. And that's what the shepherds saw when they arrived. A baby wrapped up in linens, lying on a bed of limestone, in a cave of limestone. It was a place I 
Imagine no baby had been laid to rest before. And it was an ominous ominous portent. 21 chapters later, in Luke's gospel, Luke would record these words. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. You can make the case that Jesus' death was tragic. You can make no case that his death was pointless. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God became man. Not immediately in the condition to which he leads us, but he became a man into our broken, our fallen, our sinful world, although he himself was without sin. He became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew hunger and thirst and pain. He wept over the death of a friend and he wept over the hard-heartedness of people. And he became not an immortal man, but a mortal one, capable of and liable to death. But not a senseless death. He came to die for your sins and for mine. And to rise from the dead in glory so that we could walk in newness of life at peace with God. Myrrh is perhaps no longer an appropriate gift to bring to the one who says, Behold, I was dead and now I am alive forevermore. But you can reflect that gift of myrrh by confessing your own sins and accepting him in his death to pay for your sins. The Apostle Paul would say to the church at Corinth that the the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
And you could pray today, right now. God in heaven, I can do nothing to pay for my sins, nothing to reconcile myself to you. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose again for my justification to give me peace with you, and I receive the gift of your grace through his death, through his sacrifice, and I bow to him as my king, and I worship him as my God. You've not done that before. I want to encourage you to take uh, the next few moments as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to seek Him and to find peace with God. Reflect on what Jesus has done and, and let me call on you and encourage you to believe because He offers you grace and forgiveness and full cleansing from sin and reconciliation from God. Receive him. Accept his gift. And if you have done that, and you've confessed that faith for the world to know, you've been baptized and you've joined uh, his church, this one or another, I invite you in the name of the Lord to come and partake of this table because it is the sign and the seal of everything the myrrh represents.